everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast. This is your host, Chad Anderson, and I am so incredibly honored and surprised to have the incredible and iconic writer, uh, Roy Thomas, here with us. We are so honored to have his uh, his manager, John Cimino, here with us as well. Uh, Roy, I am a longtime Marvel fan uh, and a huge fan of yours. And on the podcast I'm hosting, we have been reviewing the original X-Men books from the 1960s, kind of one issue at a time, taking really deep dives in. And we are reviewing your X-Men work as we are on the podcast. So what an absolute honor to have you here with us uh, to talk about your work today. Thank you for being here. Well, my pleasure. This is better than what John and I were doing earlier today, which was carrying books around and... We were working on the farm. Yeah, going back and forth to the trash with uh, enormous things, most of which John carries. I carry the little things. So, <laughs> so this, this, is, this is a... Uh, this is a very easy deal compared to what we've been doing for the last two days oh. here. John came out here from Boston you know, to uh, give us a hand with some stuff that we've been putting off for a couple of decades. But the <laughs> great thing is, is I got his I got his uh, study chair we, and he signed it to me like he's finally he had this chair in his study that he was just going to yeah. throw away. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, Are you yes. or as or as I look at it, I got rid of that eyesore. <laughs> <laughs> and you carried it out and you carried it away so that I didn't have to. No way. That's going to go in my study. So, so this is the easiest thing we've done all day. <laughs> well, I'm so I'm so happy you're spending your afternoon with me. Thank you. Now, yes. you you have a legendary uh, career. You have done so much work across so many different comics lines for Marvel uh, as an editor, as a writer. Uh, I want to focus most of our conversation today around your X-Men work, if that's all right. But feel free to talk about whatever comes to mind. Uh, so let me begin by uh, by stating, now, now Stanley and Jack Kirby created the X-Men, mm -hmm. but just shortly into their run after a few years, you ended up taking over the X-Men line. Uh, yeah. tell, me, tell me the circumstances of how that happened and what that was like for you to pick up that work at the time. Of course, it wasn't a, an X-Men line. At that time, it was one book, which had only recently turned from bi-monthly to monthly. And it was one of the probably two least, uh, when I took it over, it was probably one of the two least well-selling you know, books that Marvel had, along with uh, Strange Tales. You know, even when Storenko and, uh, as good as it was then, Storenko and Ditko, you know, working on S.H.I.E.L.D. and Doctor Strange, those books never sold and X-Men never sold. You know, it was always at the bottom, even under Stan and Jack. So it was, it sold better than it did under me and Werner Roth later. <laughs> but uh, it was, it was weird because nobody ever would have thought that X-Men was going to be one of the most, you know, popular. And for some years, the most popular team books. Now, maybe you could say Avengers has kind of eclipsed it because of the movies. But, uh, uh, but of course, X-Men at the time was considered like, you know, it was below Fantastic Four, you know, below, Probably below Sergeant Fury, too, as a matter of fact, when you're thinking of team books in terms of sales, popularity, and so forth. But, you know, Stan had faith in it, you know, and he was always pushing it. And then in, in, in 1966, he pushed it off on me, <laughs> which shows you that it couldn't have, you know, been too valuable because he always gave me, you know, some of the least valuable books. I mean, you know, he wasn't going to give me the Spider-Man or... Uh, you know, or Thor, he was going to give me the books that were the least. He started like with Sergeant Fury, which was popular, but wasn't a superhero. And of the superhero, the first superhero series I really had that I did for 
more than an issue or so in a row was uh, was X-Men. And that's because he could kind of spare it. One day I walked in the office and he handed me the 20 pages of uh, original artwork to what was it? X-Men number 20. Is that the number? Something like that. No, 20. Yeah. 20. I don't remember the exact number, whatever it was. And uh, it had already been plotted by him and Werner Roth. So actually, all I did that first one, though I'm listed as the writer, I was really just dialoguing a story that I'd had nothing at all to do with until it was already, you know, drawn. It was the next issue where I started doing the plotting myself. Now, what was it like? Uh, just give us some insight on what it was like working with Stanley and Werner Roth back in the day. What was it like at Marvel Studios back in the '60s? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't Marvel Studios. I mean, they never. They they would never have used that. It was just the Marvel offices, you know. As a matter of fact, the Marvel offices at that time still were just a few, uh, a few offices, maybe four or five small stands and two or three others uh, as a part of magazine management. You know, the larger company that had, uh, you know, they did the so-called men's sweat magazines with titles like Mail and Stag and Men's World <laughs> and, you know, it had romance magazines and movie magazines and crossword puzzles and all kinds of stuff. And Marvel was by 65 when I came in was, uh, you know, becoming more important uh, and everything, but we still just, you know, had a few little offices there and Stan's uh, office took up more room, I think, than the other two or three together. <laughs> but, uh, but it was great, you know, working with him, uh, especially because when I started in 65, I became one of only, you know, five, six people in the office. The only, I shared an office with uh, the production manager, Saul Brodsky, who of course had been a, a comic artist himself and had inked, Fantastic Four number three and four and had designed the logo, uh, Flo, Flo Steinberg. And I became the third person in that office sitting before a, an old uh, manual Underwood typewriter on this, this corrugated metal desk that really wasn't very good for writing or doing much of anything on. And, uh, you know, I was expected, I was supposed to sit there and uh, I wasn't supposed to do any editing. I was supposed to sit there and type stories all day long, except of course I couldn't do it because I had this secretary around there, you know, making phone calls, taking phone calls. I'd have uh, Saul Brodsky would ask me uh, to do some backup proofreading, you know, which I wasn't really hired to do. But I mean, you know, I did whatever they told me or Stan would come in. Where did Dr. Doom last appear? You know, and did we kill off <laughs> this guy or that guy? And I, after a, a very few weeks, I found I was having to after days, I was finding I had to stay after the after work at, at the office till five thirty, six o'clock or so. And I'd be working on the writing then. I probably worked even later than that. Luckily, I could let myself out of the office. wasn't a big problem. And uh, because I couldn't work, you know, and I finally had to tell Stan and Saul, I said, I, I, I can't. I'm, I was hired to be a staff writer. That was my official position. But I said, I can't write on staff. I'm having to write after after work. So from that time on, I became a, uh, a freelancer, you know, and, and I, I could write do all my writing outside the office. And I got paid for it as freelance. And you know, and then, and eventually I was, before too long, I was even able to stay home one and then two days a week, the same two days that Stan was off. You'd think we'd want to stagger, but he preferred to have me there the same days he was there. So that was, and then the other office across there in 65, when I came in was Marie Severin, who wasn't yet an artist. Uh, she wasn't even really doing any coloring, maybe covers occasionally, but she was basically uh, a production assistant. She did, you know, art corrections, fixing up a little lettering, although, you know, her lettering wasn't, it wasn't, Joe, you know, Sam Rosen or Artie Simic, so you could always kind of tell, but, you know, it, nobody cared that much. 
and uh, production manager fixing up art things, a hand that stand what it's fixed up or whatever. And uh, the other person in there was uh, uh, there was somebody doing commercial comics that was vague, not really connected with Marvel, although I did write something for Hojo Cola, Howard Johnson cola drinks that lasted about three weeks i wrote some commercial copy for them and the other person there when i got there was steve skates who was hired sort of as an on-staff writer and to try to do editorial proofreading and stuff about two or three weeks before i was but although steve was a talented guy and eventually made his mark in the field he didn't really work out as well at marvel so he was gone after a couple of months but that was basically it that was the marvel staff in 1965 and it wasn't that much bigger a year or so later when i started doing x-men now you worked with uh, with Werner Roth, who used the name Jay Gavin from time to time uh, yes. in in the comics for quite a while. What was the collaboration between you and Werner like? Uh, I know the Marvel method. You kind of uh, if if you were using that back then, you kind oh, of yeah, lose yeah. the script and let him use the art. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it started off a little rocky in a way. I mean, I didn't really know Werner. He was a uh, now it seems very young, but he was you know definitely a middle aged guy looked you know 40 50 years old or so you know and looked like a middle-aged guy and uh uh he was a good enough artist he had done some nice work on you know venus and horror comics and things but by this stage he'd he'd been doing romance comics for dc and things for a long time and i don't know he, he stan was by having him work over kirby layouts for an issue or two he was hoping he would you know get get into the more exciting because he could certainly draw well but he never but I don't know, you know, maybe he was to Kirby this what I was to Stan. You know, we were like the second team and we looked when we looked like the second team at that stage. And uh we actually had a little problem at first, which I've never quite understood, because somehow I, I and maybe this was Werner's idea, whatever Stan left the book, you know, after that one issue that was like half him and half me, um, somehow he he called me in and told me that Werner, he had arranged somehow with Werner that Werner Roth wanted to plot the book. And I was, I would, I'd be listed as the writer. I'd get all the writing money, but he was going to, that he would plot the book. He would come up with the stories and this and that, you know? And I, and I said, no, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. He said, why? I says, no, I says, I said, oh, look, uh, you know, I mean, by that time, Stan was having Jack and, and of course, Ditko were doing their own plotting in a lot of cases, you know, under subject to whatever he let them do. But I said, you know, I don't. I don't want it to be Werner Roth's story. You know, or that I'm just dialoguing. There's a, uh, you know, I I want to be the plotter. And so anyway, so Stan just you know called Werner and said, well, that deal's off. You know, so <laughs> so I started. You know, so from the very beginning, I I did the plots. They were always written out. I mean, I may have talked to him over the phone occasionally too, and maybe one or two of the stories later was just a phone conversation. But I would usually do a plot of. It probably averaged out three pages, four pages, you know, of single spaced copy, which didn't break it down, you know, panel by panel or page by page. It was sort of what the story was. And uh, it was up to him to figure out how to pace it. You know, I mean, I, I felt that, you know, it was kind of paced out that if you went through it and you did it at the rate that I was writing it, you'd probably, you figured out, you know, 20 pages, you divide it up, it would probably come okay. All Werner had to do was fill in particular choreography of, you know, the fight. I didn't do all everything in the fights. I might have a couple of things I wanted to accomplish in it, but the basic storyline and everything was all mine. And, but water was still, you know, filling in. And that was the way we worked for the entire, the, what, the next year or so before, I guess he sort of, I don't know if Stan wanted to replace him or whatever. And who was it? Like people like first Ross Andrew, Don Heck, other people, you know, were George uh, Tuska. George Tuska did one or two. Yeah. 
Yeah. None of the, none of the, the stuff worked out, you know, made it particularly sell well. I don't remember any of the issues. I don't remember anything selling especially badly or especially well, but you know, it wasn't, it hadn't been selling wonderfully under Stan and Jack, and it probably declined a little under us, but it was still kind of, kind of coasting along. What do you feel like, uh, what do you feel like Stan's expectations were of you on that book when, when you took over? I have no idea. He never said, he never expressed, you know, disappointment because the book wasn't selling well. I mean, I, he would go over sales figures with me now and then and so forth. And we, but it was always with the idea, well, you know, let's just uh, try to get, you know, better, you know, uh, more villains or a different villain or do this or do that. And uh, he was really more concerned really about, uh, about Werner's art not being exciting than my writing. Uh, the main flaw with my writing in those days and maybe through most of my career was that I tended to write a little too much. I'd find I sort of took what Stan was doing, which was fairly heavy copy. And I probably wrote even a little more because I would just think of things to say, you know, you had five X-Men and, and like the Werner had a tendency more than Jack did to, to draw like all five X-Men in one panel. Well, <laughs> and somehow they were kind of doing things that were, you know, reasonably interesting. And he was a good artist. So I would end up, somehow finding things for most all most of them or all of them to say and no matter how small those blooms might be and they weren't always small uh it would just be a little bit you know too much and that was my fault his fault was perhaps you know giving me that material so we were okay as a team but we weren't you know we weren't exactly uh you know god's gift to the x-men no, I, I think you did iconic work with characters that, you know, were still being interpreted in a lot of ways. Your first issue, X-Men number 20, was the one you're saying you worked with Stan on. Uh, that's the that's, one with the origin? Yeah, it's, that's the one the where you go back and you, X and how you reveal how... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and then, uh, and then, twenty-one. That first one on your own is where they fight Lucifer uh, and and defeat yeah. that villain who was responsible. Um you had this this character, this telepath who could mind wipe people and these five teenagers in this isolated mansion. What was it like to take over these characters? Uh, what, what did your research involve at the beginning? How did you plot a good X-Men story back at the start? Well, I certainly didn't have to do any research because I'd been you know, an X-Men reader from the beginning. Sure. It wasn't my favorite of the books, but I always read it and I liked it. Uh, obviously, I you know, read them over a little, even a little more carefully. Uh, because I was basically trying to imitate Stan's writing style. Uh, as I got a little more used to it, I'd bring in a few more things of my own. But the, but first I felt I had to master the style of writing that was already there because if people, my name was on the stories, but if people didn't read that and thought it was exactly the same writer and exactly the same artist, meaning Kirby, we would have been very happy with that, you know. And uh, certainly I would have been, maybe where it wouldn't have been, I would have been. And but it, it, we just weren't quite a, a good enough to do that. But we, you know, we got in our licks and we did some nice things. I enjoyed certain certain characters I made up. I had fun with the locust character. I remember was kind of fun to do. And he's great. I had been, been to Mexico uh, driving around for a month with a girlfriend back in 1964, which is only about three years before I did a story with uh, that Kukul Khan, you know, feathered serpent character. And while that wasn't exactly based on my own exploits or anything I saw, but I was kind of inspired by the fact that I had been to a lot of the, you know, I, I'd been on top of the pyramid of the sun and, you know, I'd been to Tula where they have these gigantic uh, statues and things like that and seen, seen a bunch of ruins and been in the big pyramid of Tula, Cholula. So I, uh, you know, so I was kind of inspired by that and I, I had a good time with the X-Men and, and I like group books, as you may know, you know, my favorite comic 
of all time well you know was always the all-star comics with the justice society of america so anything any kind of group comic i liked from the beginning i mean that i liked that about sergeant fury and i liked that about x-men and then a little later when i inherited avengers i liked that too you know i, I liked writing group books so you, uh, let me run by some of the, the villains you created for the X-Men and just tell me some of your thoughts on them briefly, if you All remember right. them. So you, you sure. shared Kukul Khan. Uh, t- tell us about Locust a little bit. We we reviewed that comic with Locust recently, mm. and I noticed uh, I noticed his name. His real name was uh, Augustus Hopper, Gus Hopper, yeah. which yeah. was so great. Uh, tell us a little about yeah. Locust or your thoughts there. Yeah. Well, I, I funny thing is, as I said, I enjoyed it, but I haven't got any deep thoughts. I, I think that I, I was tr- looking for, you know, a, kind of a, a good animal kind of name. Marvel had a lot of those. And, you know, and at the same time, you want something that sounds, you know, sinister. Grasshopper wouldn't really, you know, do it as much. <laughs> locust somehow. And of course, I was, I think the title might have been The Day of the Locust. Of course, that's the fame, that's the title of a famous book about Hollywood, right? Made into a movie some years ago. But it's one of the most famous movies, I guess, was it the 30s? To come out of, uh, of Hollywood was The Day of the Locust. And uh, so I just took the title and, uh, and made up a new character with it. Uh, I don't remember that much about it. I just remember I had fun doing it. The idea of a person who was, you know, controlling insects. You know, there had been a few heroes that did that. There was um, that, that I remember reading the Yellow Jacket character that Charlton had had back in the 40s. And he was always, he ordered wasps around, things like that, you know. <laughs> so I thought it'd be kind of fun to do that. And I think he worked out okay. I don't. I don't guess. I don't know why I didn't. I guess maybe other people brought him back. I never used him again. Yeah, he's uh, he's appeared off and on only a handful yeah. of times over the years. Yeah. The design, and this is a character who's never come back. The design on Kukul Khan, even now, I look back and he's just a beautifully designed villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, all Werner. Yeah, that's pretty much. I said I probably sent him some, you know, general reference, or he had some reference, you know, from, you know, the Aztec days and things like that. But other than that, you know, he did the he did design. I didn't I just tell him made him look like one of these godlike, you know, characters and so forth on Earth. And he really looks like a kind of a uh, an ancestor of like the Eternals when they came along. Later. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, and then how about the ogre? Do you recall him? Yeah, not too much. He was one of the first, but he was just I don't know. I needed something. So I made up an ogre because I figured that was a strong sounding name. You know, I remember almost nothing about him, though. He was, wasn't he teamed up with somebody? Was it the Banshee? Yeah, yeah. So you, uh, he worked for- It was part of that Factor 3 thing, which was one of the first things I came up with. I was was kind of proud of that. That came out of the James Bond movies, you know, with the Spectre and and all that. That was kind of going around, man from uncle on TV. So I made up Factor 3. I figured, well, Factor 1 is America and its allies. Factor 2 is Russia. And this was like the, before the rise of China, this was the- uh, you know, a third factor that was trying to get these two to to fight each other. So I thought factor three, although it sounds like a toothpaste, and somebody <laughs> probably remarked on that, but it, it was it was fairly it was fairly popular. It was a lot of fun to do. So I carried that through as like probably the one of the first of my what long term plots that went on for a number of issues. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about factor three for just a minute. I, two things I'm really I just told you everything I know about them. <laughs> I don't remember much else. Well, two things I'm really impressed with in that story is number one, it was a very long form plot. You stretched mm-hmm. it out well over a year. There was kind of was that it? mysterious yeah. behind the scenes presence. Then mm-hmm. when you finally revealed them, you brought back a lot of the classic X-Men characters like the Vanisher and the Blob and uh, people we hadn't seen in some time as yeah. the agents of the mutant master, mm-hmm. who then turns out to be that alien guy who's manipulating the mutants. Well, I, I, forgot. Was a, I forgot that part. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you recall the mutant master now that I mentioned that? 
No, great name though. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the database. Really. Is it really? I have to look at that some of these days. Yeah, yeah it's. A, I, it's I don't a, remember the mutant master name at all. Uh, yeah, but of course, a, I like using the old characters, and Stan liked it. Stan's view, and I think the first time that I that 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 I use anything like that was when Stan wanted me to do. Um, we were discussing about the third or so of my X Men, and he. He liked the idea of that group with all, with Count Nefaria and the four or five bad guys, Porcupine, Oz, because Stan's theory, which was probably true, that you might have a lot of characters like Porcupine and Count Nefaria. They aren't that much on their own. You know, they they didn't make any great waves, you know, any more than the Locust Road. But you put four or five of them together and it seems better, you know, somehow and more interesting than if it was just one of them or two yeah. of them. So that's those... that's basically what I what I did. I, and I like the Vanisher and the Blob and those characters. So I wanted to bring them back. Eunice the Untouchable. Yeah, your uh, your your storyline with Count Nefaria and Plant Man and Porcupine and Eel and all those guys, the the, the unicorn. There, there was there was really surprising because that was kind of the first time the X Men had faced villains from another comic book, and uh, you brought those guys in pretty regularly. Uh, it made it Who's feel from like another comic book. Well, Count Count Nefaria being from the oh, Avengers. Yeah, because yeah, that's and, the other. Yeah, because that's true. Porcupine was an X Men villain. Was he? Was no, he was. He was a uh, an Ant Man villain. Ant Man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you that's brought in these characters. Well, Stan and I probably talked it over, and you know, he, he may have suggested a few of them. I may have come up with some. He came up with some. I think that that's. I mean, that's as much as Stan had to do with the plotting. Really, uh, I think he checked over that plot more than most because it was one of the first ones, and I remember he had a few reservations about it but after that he, he mostly left me alone with the plotting he felt i was kind of getting in the vein i guess in his own when you brought back the juggernaut you also introduced a bizarre little character named the outcast who was uh, uh living in the dimension of sidorak yeah. Uh, and there's there's a there's a cover that was drawn with the outcast right. on it that the, yeah. the comics code authority said no this is too scary you got to switch it around uh, tell yeah. us a little about that if you remember well that's about all it was. Gil Kane did this very nice cover, but it had that outcast character on. He didn't, I mean, he didn't look bad by today's standards, but I guess he looked <laughs> a little like a mo- I mean, we, this is the company that has the Hulk and the thing, and there were and this this guy, because he was so big, I think they also made us move his hand down. They were they were really big about at, at the code about uh, not having the hand too high on a page. It looks more menacing. There was that, remember that Avengers cover too, that Ramita inked i think right after he came to back to the company and they with kang and they made us move the hand down like somehow moving the hand an inch down on the cover made it look less menacing <laughs> i don't know i mean you know i like these people but i always thought they were just a little bit nuts but they were you know i think they're just caught in this thing where they had to show you know they were doing something so okay hey look at this we made a move this hand down and moved. but for some reason the ogre they just said we couldn't use that character he was too scary looking for a cover i and of course, Stan thought it was just nuts. But luckily, we had the the, the uh, Juggernaut, who actually was a bigger character, though he didn't look quite as good in some ways. So we just took the same thing, and some I don't know I don't know if Gil is probably somebody else fixed it up to look to become the uh, the Juggernaut. That's probably a better choice in a way because Juggernaut was better known. But it, I'm glad the other cover was saved because it was I think that was the superior you know cover aesthetically. Yeah, we uh, we posted an inked version of it on the on social media recently. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the character Cobalt Man? Oh, sure. The him I was real happy with. Yeah. Now, my understanding oh. back back in the '60s, Cobalt was a real scary thing for people. Oh, right? yeah. They were so, tell us Cobalt. about that character. Well, they were going to have like they were. I think that wasn't it. That were they then starting to talk about Cobalt bombs, or was that a little later? Uh, I I mean I don't know for sure. Because at it was one time they had Cobalt bombs that were, and the whole idea was they killed a lot of people without destroying property, which is you know, hey, it's a great way to do it, you know. 
and everything. But uh, cobalt, yeah, it was a kind of a scary thing. But I, th I think some of these things were being talked about if it hadn't been, you know, uh, quite top burner yet. And I thought, well, you know, we had an Iron Man and there was a metal man at DC. Why not? Cobalt was a good name. You know, some metals wouldn't be so fun, like, you know, a Tin Man. That doesn't sound very scary, you know, even if it wasn't an Oz character or, you know, some other metal. But cobalt sounds kind of, I don't know, it has that K sound at the beginning and so forth. And so I so I told Werner, I said, look, just make up an Iron Man type villain, call him Cobalt. Man. Well, as far as I could tell, basically what Werner did was draw Iron Man. And we colored in blue. That was basically it. I can, you, you look at a picture of Cobalt Man and that issue, you can barely tell any difference between him and Iron Man if it wasn't colored. So it was way, way too close. And years later, when I was doing the Hulk, I uh, used an excuse to uh, redesign Cobalt Man. But, right. but I thought it was a, a, a nice concept. And I just felt like uh, I'd have got more enthusiastic if he, had, if he hadn't looked just like Iron Man with, uh, you know, until, until the color was on there. It was like he was fighting Iron Man. And everything i would have rather had a more you know original character but still i was happy with you know the general idea of cobalt man but then i don't know if you guys saw remember when herb trimpey uh drew cobalt man in the hulk yeah that was yeah. that was when i was doing that's when we just redesigned yeah. the costume yeah, I, yeah it looked so much better. yeah because i was uh, he was then he became more maybe he was less iron man more titanium man yeah. but but that looked better yeah i, I liked cobalt man i think he could have become a nice name for a hero even you know if well he's that character's actually come back quite a bit over the years not yeah. not extensively but he's been used quite quite frequently uh even in the uh the civil war series which was so yeah. famous just a few years read ago that someday yeah yeah it's good <laughs> uh let me run down the original team of x-men and uh whatever your right. thoughts are great uh tell me about your thoughts on and some of your work with each of these characters uh, let's start with just professor x well, of course, I had to do dialogue for his uh, his origin and the secret of how he lost his use of his legs and everything at the beginning. I thought it was kind of interesting. I, I guess I always thought of him as being, you know, older. There it, it, it was a kind of a doubt as to how old, question as to how much older he was than the X-Men, you know. But, uh, you know, maybe he was in his, I always thought he had to be 30 or 35. I don't know. I, I just felt that he was like almost twice the age of the X-Men maybe because he was bald but just because you know he, he was a teacher <laughs> type and everything um he was he wasn't a character that i especially enjoyed writing but you know I, I tried to write him the way that he was he's the leader of the team and he's got he's the guy that kind of holds him together so but i didn't have any special interest in him he's so powerful uh you can just wipe people's minds right and you seem mm -hmm. to you seem to in that run find things for him to do a lot that would kind of take him away from the team and then eventually you wrote him out of the team. He got kidnapped by Factor 3 for a while. And then mm -hmm. there was his death uh, yeah. where he had, didn't actually die, of course, but it was believed he was dead. Uh, yeah. What was I think that was, was Stan's. I think that was Stan's idea. After he'd been out for a while, Stan decided to try to kill him off just to you know generate a little interest in a book that was had dropped in sales. Was, was it was it challenging to write a character that powerful? Yeah, probably. That's probably why I wrote him out. Besides, it, the book was called The X-Men and all Professor X was technically one of the X-Men. I felt the the main interest should be on the teenagers. And if they had this guy telling him what to do all the time, it was more like, you know, he's a Boy Scout troop leader or something. And so I preferred to have the, uh, the X-Men without him as much as possible. So having him get kidnapped or whatever or thought dead was, you know, kind of nice. And Stan, you know, came to feel the same way about him after a while. It's, but we never really wanted to get rid of him on a permanent basis, of course. At one point, you gave him a walking suit or like some mechanical leg braces that would allow him yeah. to move around. Uh, yeah. Tell me the thoughts there. I don't remember. I don't even remember if that was my idea or Stan's. I, I just I don't recall. It was just just an attempt to do something, you know, a little different with him because 
Otherwise, he's also there was the fact that, a few, you know, while it was as far as I know, I wasn't there at the time. As far as I know, it was just a coincidence. You know, Professor X had come on the scene a few months, a, a couple of months or so after uh, the chief in the Doom Patrol. Sure. You know, and while he, while the that the chief didn't have any powers the way that Professor X did, you still had two different guys in a wheelchair leading these teams of misfits, and you know, and somehow over the years, uh, you know, uh, Arnold Drake, the writer and co-creator of Doom Patrol, became convinced that Marvel has swiped his idea, like the, like you know, what a Stan and Jack's greatest ideas would be to swipe this idea of a guy in a wheelchair being the leader of a team. It was that wonderful an idea anyway, you know. There's a there's a there's a hilarious scene in one of your issues where Professor X disguises himself as a hermit and he puts on his walking suit and I think it's with the locust and he walks up to the locust and he's like, ha ha, I'm Professor X the whole time he rips his beard off. It's really funny. We, uh, we laughed about <laughs> Don't remember it. that <laughs> a long time ago. Tell us about your work with Hank McCoy, the beast. Well, I, I enjoyed him because I, I got a, I had fun with his uh, his speech pattern. Stan had you know, made him the equivalent of uh, what big words in the newsboy legion or whatever years before. And uh, I liked the idea of throwing in these big vocabulary words that have this character that would always find the most complicated and or locacious word way of saying something. So I enjoyed that. Uh, other other than that, you know, he was just another X-Men, but I, I enjoyed the the writing of his dialogue. Yeah, even now as I read, and I and I'm a writer myself, I have to go look up some of the words you use for him sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but you seem to have a lot of fun with him. He seemed to be yeah, a did. favorite of yours to write. Oh, uh, what about what about Scott Summers or Cyclops? Yeah, well, one thing I never used that name Slim, right? Didn't he? Wasn't he called Slim once or twice? And yeah, uh, uh-huh. I kind of forgot about that because a guy who's all Scott Summers and Cyclops doesn't need another nickname, you know. So I think Stan thought better of that even before I got there, but. Uh, well, I liked him. He was, he just, of course, he's a very serious character, uh, which makes sense for a guy who, you know, who's had to have his, keep his eyes covered for all of his life for fear of harming somebody. Uh, but I didn't find him especially, you know, interesting. I have to say that as much as, although I rather enjoyed writing the X-Men, it wasn't a book I was, you know, so committed to that I did that I minded leaving it. I never liked writing, uh, certainly, you know, before I was writing with Neil, uh, I never liked writing the X-Men as much as I liked writing just a workaday issue of, say, Doctor uh, of, uh, you know, the Avengers, let alone Fantastic Four. It was it was OK, but it, I was it was I was always aware this was like Marvel's number three superhero team, you know, sure, yeah. and everything. And, uh, you know, I was trying to do the best I could with it. But I I can't say that I probably liked the X-Men as much as, you know, maybe it would have been you know good for me to to like them. I did the best I could with them. But. I wasn't as enthusiastic about writing X-Men as maybe I could have been. Uh, just I was just enthusiastic about writing comics in general. Yeah, yeah. Cyclops uh, back then was kind of the most powerful member in a lot of ways. He had the yeah. I-beams, right? He he was yeah. concussive and the leader. Uh, tell me about your work with Iceman. Oh, I got to tell you something funny about, I'll tell you something funny about Cyclops. Sure. I, I don't understand this. I think, I, I, I think it was Werner Roth one day, he put in his little notes in the margins. He didn't write that much because it was my story, but... He, he came up with something on, in some story, uh, it, it, some notes about the, uh, his, his visor, you know, being made, what was it? Ruby crystal? No, Ruby, Ruby quartz. quartz. Yeah, Ruby quartz. quartz. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know it was anything real, but I just liked the sound of it. So I threw it in. So that's how he got Ruby quartz. And I, I have no idea to this day if it's a real thing or if it would stop, you know, uh, 
a ray of light, let alone Cyclops's eyes. And I don't know where I, I never asked where we got it from. I just thought oh, that sounds good. So I threw it in. They still use but that as a casually something that's lasted now for so many years was done back then. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, tell me about Bobby Drake or Iceman. Well, I thought of him as just being, you know, a cold version of the human torch, a little less, a uh, little younger. Somehow he seemed younger, you know, than the other than the other X-Men, wasn't it? Was he supposed to be? I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. He was 16 yeah. at the beginning where the others were yeah, 18. Yeah, he, he seemed a little younger. And again, I, I like the, I, I did like the, uh, the powers to some extent. There had been an old comic hero called Sub-Zero Man who had been a backup feature in Black Blue Bolt comics at one time. And I sort of liked him. I remember, I think Bill Everett drew him once or twice. And I used to see those stories. I always liked the idea of a guy who was cold. I never saw the old uh, timely character Jack Frost at that time. He was already long since dead. But I like the idea of, you know, the the, the torch with the firepower or the uh, Iceman with, uh, you know, his, I didn't like the name Iceman too much. I would have preferred a different name, but I like that. I, when I had been a kid and I loved the human torch, I had made up a character who had um, electricity as his power. And I called him Shockman and he became the basis later when uh, my wife and I made up the living lightning character when we were doing Avengers West Coast. But that, oh. that went all the way back to when I was maybe 10 years old and doing Shockman, you know. And so I, I like this idea of taking some, you know, electricity, fire, water, you know, ice and, and you know, making that the base of somebody's power. I thought that was a good idea. Now, Iceman uh, has been revealed in the more modern continuity to be gay. And uh, a lot of times readers will go back into those 60s books and look for signs. And, and There are no, signs. Well, there are no we, signs. He wasn't gay we, until he was gay. <laughs> weirdly, there's, okay. some, there's some yeah. that you can find along the way, like in uh, X-Men number you, one. Yeah, if you, if you want to read them, you can find anything if you're looking for it. Yeah, in X-Men number one, all the characters are like, ooh, look at Jean Grey. And Iceman's like, ugh, she's just a girl. <laughs> like little Yeah, well, like that. He's, but that was he was younger and he was, you know. Don't get me wrong. I have no objection to they're doing it. I just don't think it makes any sense because, you know, I feel they should. If you want to, if you want uh, to come up with a character, I think you should come up with a new character. And then I'm in favor of gay characters and the whole spectrum diverse, every race, every creed, every every everything. But I don't think you should take an old character, and you know, and change it. But other than that, I'm, you know, I think it, I think it's fine. I just don't think that I don't think there's anything inherit in the character i think that's something people wanted to find later sure. you can have fun with it they've done it with green lantern that uh or you could do it with green lantern or dr midnight because they never had regular girlfriends but perfectly okay i i, I do think it's great you know that there are gay characters in comics. absolutely yeah yeah ironically yeah. ironically they've made a uh, living lightning gay as well which is oh, interesting. That, yeah well, see that's a little easier because he wasn't around as long right you know he came through a lot later although uh, again Although again, if you ask me, is is Living Lightning gay? No, because I because my wife and I created him not to be gay. So therefore, as far as I'm concerned, that's illegitimate. They should make up a new Living Lightning character or a new character and make him gay. That's, totally that's my theory on almost everything, you know, and everything across the board is there should be a new character and not an old character, you know, retcon. You know, it's, yeah, it's always an interesting thing when you add that retroactive continuity and, and change. Yeah. But I've probably done story. things like it that other people object to. So I I'm not really objecting <laughs> to it. It's just. You know, it's just drawings and words on paper. So Absolutely. I got no objection to any of it. You know, you know, I don't own living lightning. Matter of fact, I, I would love to see him. I would love to see him end up in a, a movie one of these days. I think he's a great character. My main interest in him was making him one of the first Latin American yeah. superheroes. 
if he's also a gay Latin American, that's fine too. You know, I don't really they did so much. They did some great stuff with him in an Avengers run just a couple years ago. He he yeah. was a featured yeah. character. It's really yeah. fun. Uh, tell me about your work with uh, Warren Worthington or or the Angel. The Angel. Well, I I liked him because my favorite character uh, really when I was a kid because of Joe Kubert's artwork was uh, Hawkman. So a guy with wings, you know, was just really very interesting to me. Of course, these are real wings where Hawkman just strapped his on. So I liked that idea. It was always kind of funny that he could actually fold them up enough that he could walk around without people knowing he had wigs. But, uh, you know, it was comic books and I, you know, was willing to go along with that. I liked the idea that he was the, you know, he's the rich, spoiled kid. Stan had a nice, Stan and Jack had a nice group, you know, and so forth. They, they, they played off each other. No two were exactly alike. They had, they could have different speech patterns, different, uh, you know, different uh, attitudes toward things. And, you know, that was the, the whole strength of it. Uh, so I thought he was a, a good character. And any, anytime you needed some money, well, you know, I guess he could come up with it. You know? <laughs> then, uh, and then finally, Jean Grey or Marvel Girl, the yeah. only girl on the team. Uh, what was it like yeah. to write her? Well, you know, probably less interested in the four guys, uh, you know, and everything that became, you know, writing women X-Men became more Chris Claremont's thing later on. But, you know, but again, I, I, I liked her. I, I liked the idea there was a woman in the team and uh, I, her power, of course, was, was great. The telekinetic power, again, would could potentially make her as powerful as just about any X-Men, too, you know, and they used that more in, in the, the, the course at the time. I was kind of under the influence of Stan and Stan tended to write the women characters, you know, as really women characters. They were always, you know, there's always somebody they're in love with. And that was like, it was almost like a romance comic, whenever the women characters started talking, whether it was the, the wasp who spent like the first 10 issues of the book, then mooning over Hank Pym, you know, uh, it was almost ridiculous, you know, or, uh, or flirting with and sometimes Thor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so she'd, green, she'd flirt know? with <laughs> Thor to make Hank jealous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, but I it never I never felt, you know, especially kinships. When, when we had a five page backup feature about her, that, that word or basically plotted uh, about uh, the various X-Men, you know, with their powers, the Iceman and this guy and that guy. When there was one when there was a five page feature on Marvel Girl, I ended up having Linda fight who worked at the office and who wanted to do a little writing, do it because, you know, I thought, you know, let's, let's get a woman's perspective in here, you know, and everything. And she, you know did it nicely. And uh, between her and Werner, I think that turned out to be a nice little feature, but I just, I, I liked all the characters uh, and everything. And, but I never really enjoyed writing X-Men really until I was working, uh, you know, with, uh, with Neil after being off it for several issues and so forth. So, you know, there was that break and everything. And then when I came back to it, it was just another book that I came back to and I wasn't real happy about it. Uh, but under, First, it was given to Gary, I guess, Gary Friedrich. Yeah, yeah. Who uh, he picked up from a story I wrote, the one that brought the Red Raven, you know, back. And then he wrote a few on his own and did a good job with it. Uh, I, I guess he had other things he wanted to do and he didn't care about X-Men. So it's, and Arnold Drake came over. Well, it seemed natural for the guy who had made up Doom Patrol that was the closest thing to X-Men. And Arnold wasn't objecting then, you know, because he was getting an assignment out of it. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, to have him do X Men, it was it was all right, you know, uh, and everything. And I don't know. Somehow we thought Arnold would fit in better at Marvel than he ever did, and so forth. Because I had really liked his Doom Patrol. I felt his Marvel writing somehow or other didn't quite fit in with Marvel as well as it had in DC. But you know, and, and the book, which had not been super strong, understand, and had been maybe a little less strong under me with Werner and others, and 
somehow during that period, for whatever reason, uh, you know, the sales just kind of began to slip a little more seriously. Right. You know, maybe it's just because we're changing writers and artists several different times. Not it's certainly not that the people were talented and everything. And uh, so Stan asked me to, you know, and ask, I, I'm putting air quotes around ask when Stan asked, <laughs> you know, it's like saying do it uh, to come back and write the book. And I was not eager to do it by then I'm doing Avengers and other stuff. I didn't want to go back to the X-Men. I, you know, I, I'd done the X-Men, uh, but he just, was determined that I do it. So I went back and I was trying to get in, into it for about one issue, you know, picking up what uh, Scott Summers's brother who had been created, not necessarily even that he might or might not be a mutant by Arnold. And I decided he's definitely a mutant and so forth. And, and then of course, uh, Neil Adams walked in and the rest is a whole different kind of history that made the X-Men, the X-Men up that was that last year or so of his life. You know, I think one of the best uh, books of that period. Yeah, Neil Neil Adams' artwork is just stunning. Uh, uh, what it's was even it like? More stunning when you put it in the context of, you know, that time over fifty years ago and what the rest of the field was. It's even more stunning. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to work with Neil? What was he like? Well, we had our good days, and our bad days, but Neil, of course, from the word go, was uh, just such a magnificent talent. I he didn't rem he doesn't didn't seem to want to remember it. He he said I uh, didn't know who I was. So he walked in, but. He just doesn't remember. I had met him a tie at least once, if not more often at these like, uh, you know, meetings they had, they became called first Fridays later, you know, where kind of fans and mostly pros, you know, with uh, got together and so forth and talked. And I had met him there and I had kind of admired one or two war comics he had done. Remember he did one or two war stories Yeah, yeah. for DC. And I remember, you know, mentioning to him, you know, if you ever uh, want to, you know, if, if you're ever interested in working at Marvel, I was always proselytizing, and this was obviously a talented guy. Uh, but then uh, somewhere along the line, I, I guess Neil, evidently Steranko suggested it, and that carried more weight, I suppose. And uh, all of a sudden, Neil showed up and says he wants to do some, you know, uh, bad-selling book so he can see what he can do with it, you know. And uh, he, he says that Stan told him, well, X-Men should be a good book because it's going to be canceled two issues. Again, I can't believe that if Stan said that, he didn't mean two issues literally because Stan didn't even make the decisions back then, you know, what books were canceled when that was Martin Goodman. But it is true that, you know, what X-Men was the kind of book that could be canceled with a couple issues. He sort of knew it was kind of hanging by a thread. That's why he had thrown me onto it. And uh, so, you know, he gave it to Neil. Uh, I actually volunteered to let Neil write it. I said, look, cause I knew he had written one or two things at DC. I said, I didn't really want to do X-Men. <clears throat> so I said, uh, you know, if you want to write it, we can talk to Stan, you know, and so he says, no, no, I says, I, he says, uh, and again, you know, he said he hadn't heard of me. He walked in, as sometimes said, but he, he's forgotten that he told me that day that he'd seen some of my writing. He liked it. So I should stay on, <coughs> which is probably a mistake <laughs> because when you get Roy Thomas, the writer, you also got Roy Thomas, the associate editor, you know, sure. And yeah. Everything. And <coughs> so, you know, so all of a sudden when I do that, as opposed to some other writer, I had extra duties besides just being the writer. I had um, I had to make sure, you know, I, I sort of was in charge of making sure the books were going, coming in on time and things. And Neil was, you know, so committed to so many things. He was doing work in commercial art. He was doing work at DC, doing work for Marvel, all of it excellent. And uh, so sometimes we were having to, you know, <laughs> have fights to get the work out of him. But it was so magnificent. The, the, the day I became a Neil Adams fan was the first day that he started working on X-Men. He was sitting there in the office 
he was, he was working on this first splash page from the first X-Men he did in which I had just, you know, in my plot, which had already been written out, you know, for uh, Warner or Don Heck, whichever one broke it down. And uh, he had, uh, he was, and it was about, you know, set in Egypt and uh, it says, uh, and, and I, and I look and Neil, I guess, I guess he had a picture of the Abu symbol, uh, not, you know, uh, temple there. Maybe, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't recall. But the thing, amazing thing I was looking at is he's just drawing this thing freehand. It looks like a photograph of the app because he had drawn the Abu symbol temple just exactly. It looked so real, you know, and uh, it, it just in pencil as he's sketching it in, you know, and so forth. And I was just so impressed, you know, because uh, I'm not one of these people that thinks that the best comic book artwork is photographic real artwork i felt that some people who are really good in that vein like gray morrow you know were like could be dull as dishwater talented as they were. <laughs> sure. but neil had that ability of you know of the al williamson's and the you know and these real super realistic artists and he could combine that with the drama that was inherent in jack kirby and the kind of thing that stan like and he was just so magnificent you know and i just you know and despite any any little problems or even big problems i just i loved working with him and, uh, you know, uh, he had as much to do, at least with the plotting of those books as I did, because I didn't really care what we did. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, we were finishing off this story. I didn't really care. I just, I wanted to write X-Men. I wanted, I wanted it to be commercial. I wanted to, you know, to look good and read good. And I wanted to have fun writing it, but exactly what the story was, you know, as long as Stan was going to be happy with it and we had a chance of selling a comic book or two, I didn't really care. So, you know, we came up with stuff together and, it, it, you know, in the end, it wasn't Neil's X-Men. It wasn't, you know, uh, my X-Men. It was our X-Men. But I'm well aware of the fact that the thing that makes it really remembered is because Neil was drawing it, you know, not, not because I was writing it, even though I think I wrote it fairly well. Now, in one of your earliest issues of the X-Men, you wrote Jean Grey as leaving the team and going off to Metro College. Was that yeah. an attempt to rent her out of the book or advance the character in a different oh, way? No, no, of course no, she no. stayed I, part of the team. No, I would never have done that because I've wanted at least one woman in the team. If we have five characters, at least one of them had to be a woman. I wouldn't have thought of making it two at that in that day and age, as opposed to what Chris, you know, did later. Sure. But I no, no, it was just an attempt to open things up and maybe see if there are any story possibilities there. Okay. Uh, my favorite thing uh, from, from the early 60s books, but in both Stan's run and in yours, is the Café Agogo with Bernard the Poet and <laughs> Zelda and Vera. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, yeah. uh, the Café Agogo. I guess Stan started that, didn't he? With uh, the, uh -huh. he, had, he had the first couple of scenes, probably named the Café. Was that still with Jack? Or was, that was probably, was it still with Jack? Yeah, yeah. At least laying it out. But then you brought in, you brought in uh, uh, the characters more consistently. Yeah, I because I, I kind of liked it. Well, for one thing, at about that time, you know, I was living in Greenwich Village from uh, from the end of 1965 for about five or six months in, into uh, into 1966. Gary Friedrich and I and Bill Everett unofficially, unofficially, you know, were living on the second floor on Bleecker Street, 177A Bleecker Street, an address that became famous in another series a little later, and uh, you know, we were living there and you know, right above one of the uh, busiest, you know, uh, parts of the, of the village. And uh, so, you know, it just became a natural thing to, we were going to some of these clubs. I mean, we didn't hang around them a lot. We'd go in there and we'd have our espresso. And 
some, once in a while they had a poet or this, that. So the kind of thing Stan was doing, Stan probably never saw any of that stuff. He's basing it on probably what was on TV or something or what he read about. But I had actually been in some of those places. I don't think I necessarily wrote them any better or more realistically, but at least I had been in them. And it was so I, I kind of wanted to keep it around and I would play around with it. Uh, the two things I remember the most about that was I, I had somebody do a poem that I was I was proud of the title of it, it was, uh, you know, the, the the Charlie Brown peanuts thing. They had that expression and I guess it was a book and different things. Happiness is a warm puppy. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sure. So I so I anyway, it was a famous expression at the time is probably it's one of the book titles of his peanuts reprints or something. So I made up, you know, I felt that what these guys in the village, they, they have happiness is a warm puppet. And, you know, I, I could have had a whole philosophy behind that. But of course, I didn't have room to expound in the comic book. The other thing I did that could have got Marvel in trouble. I don't know why I did this, but I was a moderate fan, uh, not like of the Beatles, but uh, of the monkeys, you know, when they came on TV. I thought, you know, they sounded pretty good. I did, you know, they got tired of the show pretty quickly, but they sounded okay. And they had that wonderful one song, uh, I'm a Believer. Yeah. And yeah. I actually used a couple of lines from that in one of those scenes. And of course, Legally, I, we could have gotten in trouble. I think I probably used a syllable or two too much. Uh, and, but the funny thing is, although it's been known for years I did this, they've reprinted it a million times, and they've never taken that out, worried about being sued. I, maybe I think uh, I think you had a Rolling Stones song back then too. Yeah, you did. Uh, you did a couple of that with within a, the Cafe of Go Go scenes. Now the uh, yeah. my, my my I have a deep love for the characters Vera and Zelda and Candy and the way that you used them as the love interests for the characters back then. Yeah. Any, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share on those three? No. Uh, just that I, I mean, just that I was trying to, you know, line them up. Did I make those characters up? I think I did. So I think uh, I think Our, Stan made Zelda Stan. and I think you made okay. Vera and Candy, if I'm remembering. Okay. Right? Yeah, Zelda, that's a name Stan could have come up with, from Zelda Fitzgerald, probably. Sure, I mean, sure. The Candy character I know I came up with because there was a, a, a famous novel they made into a movie, a rather risque hu black humor novel called Candy by a guy, writer named Terry Southern. So Candy, so I, Southern. So Candy Southern was, you know, from that. Uh, I don't remember the the other thing as much, but just, yeah, you know, just to try to get a few characters that would, uh, you know, expand on what Stan did and make up my own character. And Candy Southern kind of took on her life of her own, even though I don't remember much about it now. Yeah, she's uh, she's actually getting some traction lately. She hasn't been yeah. in the comics for a long time, but there's a lot of love for that character online oh. right now. T-shirts being made and stuff about oh, Candy Good, because right I now. remember at the time I kind of enjoyed uh, her. I don't remember much about her, but she was just kind of, I don't know, maybe she was an early Mary Jane type. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, a little Mary Tyler Moore-esque. Uh, mm -hmm. she's, she's, a, she's a really great character. Now, uh, uh, tell us about the creation of the Banshee, who is a character that's gone on to become iconic in the comics in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Yeah, he was one of my earlier creations, I guess, in a certain way, and one of the first in there, and uh, one of the first I was really proud of. The basic thing was, uh, you know, I just liked that name, and I was looking for good characters. I, well, if we had a Banshee character, his his power would be sound. You know, that, that's how, that seemed like a good mutant power, along with the vanishing and the blob and, you know, and, and that kind of, and Eunice the Untouchable. So, so I just made up that character, and of course, I decided that to make him Irish because, you know, Banshees are Irish myths. And I, and I, and that was like the first time I was really consciously thinking about the fact that there should be characters from other countries, other cultures, you know, that's kind of, it was my first, you know, little mini diversity nod myself. No, you know, there wasn't any, there wasn't any pressure to make up a character from another country. I just thought it'd be kind of nice to do. I was kind of disappointed that Werner made him look older. I don't think I really wanted him to look as quite as old as he did. 
but you know that doesn't make too much difference. Uh, I, I, Werner designed a great costume for him, you know, and mm-hmm. everything which looked mm-hmm. great in green, you know, and so forth, the Irish color. Uh, so the only thing is, you know, I, I think that at one stage I was thinking about making it a woman because, of course, banshees are women in right, the Irish yeah. myth. And Stan said, "You can't." says, "It's got to be a man." I said, "Yeah, but the banshees are women." He says, "Well, if you're going to call it banshee, it has to be a man." He says, "You," he says, "You can't have the five X men fighting a woman, you know, even if she's got a lot of superpowers. You know, it's just not going to look good. You know, it's that old uh, that old statement: never fight anybody bigger than yourself, because if you win, you're a bully, and if you lose, you're a bum. Or sure. don't ever never, never fight anybody smaller than yourself, rather." Because if you win, you're a bully, and if you lose, you're a bum. And that was the Stan's feeling. Then we got a couple of letters from from people, very irate. You know, said, "Are you you idiot? Don't you know a banshee is a woman?" You know, I couldn't <laughs> say, "Well, Stan Lee made me do it because he was like that." So I can say it now, but I couldn't say it then. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, it's it's so interesting hearing the backstories. One of the early, really surprising things you did on the run uh, was add mimic to the team, but then also write him out just a few years later. Do you remember yeah, uh, yeah. why you made that decision? Yeah, I, 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 the, the reason I brought him in was because I really loved the mimic when Stan did it. You know, uh, was that with uh, Kirby's layouts or was it with Werner alone? I don't, uh, I don't recall. Werner did the finished drawing. But anyway, I think it was with, probably with Jack. Uh, I think Werner and because I think Stan only worked with Werner alone for about one issue or so before he gave it to me. But anyway, I love the mimic, the idea he had all five of the powers. And I thought this is a guy who could really fight them, you know, and everything. And I love that. Uh, so I brought him back, but so I just, I just looked it up. I just looked it up really quickly. The, 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 the first appearance of mimic was X-Men 19 and it was both Jack Kirby and Jay Gavin or, or Werner. Which means basically Jack. I mean, cause, because, uh, you know, when, you know, when it says when Jack Kirby did the layouts, I mean, OK, it's not that Werner didn't add anything to it, but basically, you know, it would be Stan's idea and Jack's idea or one or both of them together and so forth. And Werner would be the guy finishing it. But it would. Be, so he's basically a more of a Kirby, a Lee Kirby character. And I love that character. But when I got him in there somehow or other, I don't know when I realized once he's in there and he could do everything either the other five X-Men could do, it almost became too much so i wrote him out again you know <laughs> be careful what you wish for i wanted to write the mimic and what i did it turned out he didn't really fit as well he was better as a guest star occasionally why but is it that character why is it roy that you think the x-men have become such a franchise what is it that appeals to readers well i think when they were you know in the uh in 74 one of the last things i did as one of my last acts the last few weeks as editor-in-chief you know uh well, there were two in that last couple of months. One was to, you know, come up with the idea for Wolverine. It was a general idea, you know, Canadian, Wolverine, short, bad-tempered, and and ask Glenn Wein to uh, write such a character into the Hulk right away. And then we had this idea to, we were, you know, always, a, me, pro, me probably more than Stan, I was always looking for an excuse to bring the X-Men back. You know, I, I remember I had him using the Marvel team up without costumes because I wanted to try that out and this and that. Uh, and uh, I wanted to, you know, and then the Beast series, I thought might have been Stan's idea. But anyway, uh, you know, we were always trying to find ways to bring the X-Men back. And and all of a sudden, you know, we had, you know, we had this uh, chance to uh, to do it. So it, it worked out very well. But the thing that appealed to me about about uh, bringing them back that way and the reason that I think they've been such a hit is that the material was always there, you know, uh, 
I don't, I don't know to what extent, you know, Stan and Jack were really constantly thinking about the things they would talk about later. Like, you know, uh, I wanted to make, you know, people that they represented, you know, all the forgotten people. It was like, you know, racial prejudice. It was like this and that. I don't know how much Stan and Jack were really constantly thinking of all this, but of course they're human beings, they're intelligent human beings. So that was at least part of what they had in the back of their mind, even whether they were thinking about it that consciously at the time or not. They weren't out to preach, but they were looking for good stories. That was a way to, to do it. Uh, so, but I think it was bringing them back with two things. One is, of course, the idea that they would be, instead of being just the same characters, they would be a new branch that would have a couple of the old characters plus different characters from different cultures and different countries. And I thought that was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I was a part of that idea. And uh, and then, of course, the uh, the other thing that really happened to it as much as anything really was uh, was Chris Claremont, uh, along with Dave Cockrum as the artist and later John Byrne. But I think Chris was the most important element there, which which was to just to uh, really develop their characters to, uh, to make up even more mutants. So it became a really a whole universe, even unto itself, you know, sure, sure. and I think so that. You know, the most important person to the X-Men to the X-Men after Stan and Jack, you know, was easily Chris. When you reread the early books, the two the two things that stand out most that Chris Claremont seemed to pick up later is there is definitely constant talk about how mutants are separate from humans. Right. Mm -hmm. The the mobs chasing them down the road. But I feel like the first storyline that really hammers that in is the that that three issue run that Stan and Jack did that introduced the Sentinels. The government that that was absolutely the height of their. That was by far the best thing they ever did with the X-Men was the three issues of Sentinels. And then Jack, then Stan went off at like and Stan and Jack over the next couple of issues. That was the end of it. They shot their wide. That was it. <laughs> yeah, but it really it really sets apart that yeah, mm-hmm. you, what you're saying, the forgotten or the, the outcast, yeah. people who have felt left behind to find that right. voice there. Right. It, it crystallized the things that were kind of inherent in the strip and everything and and you know because it, it brought out the whole idea of you know of, of bigotry and prejudice and all the things that were kind of part and you know parcel and which i think you know were somewhat in their minds but this time you know whether whether it was jack's idea or whether stan gave him a start and then jack developed it, whatever it is it came out as a really wonderful story i thought i thought the sentinel story was a, a really the you know a high point of uh, of the x-men very definitely if you look back at your overall work at marvel what is your favorite thing you've ever done the favorite thing, uh, Conan the Barbarian. That's got to be counted as Marvel, you know. It, yes. Marvel <laughs> um, Of the Marvel characters itself, although Fantastic Four was my favorite book and I wanted to write it, I, probably my Avengers work was, you know, the thing that I, you know, liked the most. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's nice to be, uh, you know, to be remembered as the, you know, co-creator of a lot of these different characters, you know, be it Wolverine or, you know, the vision and, and all these characters, you know, that even though in, in, in all cases I was working with an, an artist, sometimes as like in the case of Wolverine with, you know, a writer and, and he actually, you know, did most of the development after the first few sentences. And, uh, you know, but, but those are the things that I like the most, probably the Avengers. If, if you're talking superheroes would have to be the Avengers. Sure. And we could talk about your work across so many different franchises, your run on the Hulk and your run on FF and your run on Avengers and your run on Conan. I think that your your talent and your work as an editor in bringing in talent and assigning them to projects that then became legendary runs for them. Uh, you're well, such an icon. With, a lot of times with uh, with that, you know, hey, all I had to do with these 
guys, Len Wein, Marv Wolf, and Jerry Conway, and some of the other guys, Steve Engelhart guys came in. All I had to do was open the door and stand out of the way. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't have much to do with the Bellic. I mean, they came in, they already knew how Stan Lee wrote, and they even knew how I wrote to some extent, you know, to, you know, as, as a slight offshoot of Stan. So they knew what was needed as a writer. All I had to do was, you know, impress upon them to do it and very occasionally mention not liking this or that, but otherwise I kind of tried to stay out of the way and they became, you know, effectively their own, at least assistant editors or whatever, you know, uh, almost from the beginning, which is what I, you know, which is what I wanted. What I, I became... to give them more, a lot of freedom because, you know, I felt I did my best work as Stan gave me more freedom, you know, you know, he wasn't coming in bothering me and Neil or, you know, or he wasn't bothering me with the Avengers very much, except keep making me kick out, keep out Thor and Iron Man and later Captain America. But, uh, you know, so I and I felt like, uh, you know, I, I wanted to give these if they if they deserved it. And those guys and some others did, uh, you know, let let them have the have the freedom to they sort of they became almost the, the writers of the Marvel books became almost from the beginning, as I was, uh, a, a de facto editor. I mean, we're all subject to Stan, and they were also subject to me during those years or whatever. But, you know, you had to kind of act as the editor. You you got some freedom for that. Uh, I wasn't going to second-guess them on every single character they made up or every single thing they did. But they also had the – with with that great power came great responsibility. Actually, with that very little bit of power came great responsibility, which is to – that we all had, you know, and sometimes did it better than others. Make the book sell, make readers interested in it, keep Stan off our backs, you know? Right. Meet your deadlines, all that stuff. Yeah, there's a yeah. there's a lot of work that goes in. The industry has obviously changed so much over the years, but the work you did, it lays the foundation for so much of what creators are doing now. These characters that we're watching movies and TV shows about uh, were so delicately handled or created in your hands. I think you're absolutely incredible. Should, I, I, should, I, should I send you my address so they can send me the checks? You know, so, so <laughs> their work. Absolutely, <laughs> but I don't know that I, I don't know that sending me the address would have much to do. That's with okay. It. That's all right. I'm just kidding. when I uh, when I was a, a young teenage reader, first picking up comics, one mm -hmm. of uh, one of the things I picked up first was your run with your wife on Avengers West Coast, and there was a mm -hmm. moment several months later where I was going back and reading old X Men books, and I'm like, oh my god, this is the same guy. There was this, uh, this this incredible realization that you had this career that had spanned decades. It is an absolute thrill and an honor to be able to hear you share your stories and your knowledge uh, today, Roy. I, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of your work in X-Men and in all of the runs. But thank you so much for the work you've done and for talking to us today. Oh, well, thank you. It's just been, been a pleasure and, uh, you know, just... Uh, you know, go seeing all those movies, you know, so that uh, Marvel will keep sending me little checks from time to time. Morbius <laughs> is coming out in a few weeks, you know. Oh, yeah, so yeah. After like 12 years in the can, I think the Morbius movie may finally escape from its casket, you know. <laughs> so, so, and Chad, you know. I just want to throw out that Vera was actually, her first appearance was X-Men 19, that she was uh, created by Stan and Jack. Roy, yeah, Roy yeah, yeah, created Candy, but I just found that out. I was interested in those. Who was the other, the third girl you talked to, Beast Girlfriend? So, uh, yeah, Vera Cantor. Yeah, no, Vera. Vera, but who was that? There was the third one besides Candy uh, and Gary. Z Zelda. Yeah. Zelda. 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 Yeah, candy. You had candy. You, yeah. know, you royally okay. created candy. Only Those candy. Well, candy, were... candy Southern, though. That, I, I remember she that became day. the most popular. Did she? Okay, well, good. Well, she <laughs> oh, yeah. Vera good. Vera showed up in that first issue with the mimic. That's right. Yeah, right mm -hmm. before you came on the book. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Vera's fine. And of course, 
you know, Zelda, yeah, Stan got that, I'm sure, from, you know, Scott Fitzgerald. It was such a, wife. it was such a, like a, a niche thing that you were talking about. And I was thinking about that. I was like, I don't remember yeah. beer. Yeah. yeah. So it was that Because cool I always hate it when I say that, you know, that I made up something that I realized that I didn't because, you know, you know, it, it's like an actor making up, you know, an actor takes a script, there's a whole script written, and then he takes it and somehow feels he created the character. It's very easy you know, for somebody to think that they created something simply because they took something and they worked with it. We all remember what we did and we don't remember what other people did quite as clearly. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and sometimes we don't remember what we did. <laughs> and, I, and as you can see from my thing today, I especially back in that period, there's certain things I remember very well and other things might have been just as well on the dark side of the moon. You know, I just did them and don't remember. But I do remember more than some people do. You know, at, at 81, my memory hasn't totally gone yet, I hope. Well, and there's there's been a lot of years and a lot of work in between now and then. Is there anything you're working on now that people should look forward to? Well, I am doing a a series, you know, a couple a two issue series for Marvel, but I don't think I'm supposed to even mention what the uh, the thing is, except that you know, based I'll just say that based on the premise of today's discussion, you'll probably be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Very happy. But now, now pleasantly surprised when you see the comic. When you read it, we had a lot of debate whether we can talk about this and yeah. we really can't, but yeah. let's the, just say Marvel's not making an announcement about it for just really two or three days. But so. it'll be out in May. Yeah. Right. And it'll be out in May, right? You'll yes. What you so, like, what you're talking about, you yeah. might but, but, you, I, but it's 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 related to some of the things we talked about today. That's so wonderful. And days. well, and this podcast won't come out for about a week. So by the time it comes out, it may have been announced. So we oh, can wait, attach it some won't links. come on the air for uh, for a week. Well, yeah, so case, I, I won't publish what it is. Yeah. As long as it doesn't go off before Wednesday, I'll I'll, I'll mention it. Yeah, yeah. So if you tell me now and and, and sure. if, if it has not been announced oh, prior, I'll okay. edit that. No, that's out. that's great. That's that's all I ask. Um Basically, it's a two-issue thing. They have a series. I guess it's called X Men Legends. Yeah, yeah. And they're gonna and and they're gonna have th different people telling stories. I, I guess from the period when they were writing X Men or drawing yeah. X Men or whatever. So with me, you know, they wanted, or maybe it's off in the same period. Anyway, they wanted me to write a story that was from the period when I was writing X Men, which means any time from, you know, when I first wrote it to the end of the book, sure, the first time, you know, in nineteen what sixty nine or seventy when. Neil's and my stuff, and then the issue that came out after that by Sal Buscema, uh, anything through there. So I, I used it to, instead to, uh, uh, to, to, to have it be from that period in between the end of the X-Men and the start of the, uh, of the new series of the new series. And, yeah. and, you know, one thing, yeah, one thing about it, it, it you know, I won't, I can't, I don't want to, that, uh, there's a big emphasis in it on a character that I helped make up, but never, but very, not never, but very seldom wrote, which is Wolverine, you know, which I always, had I known Wolverine was going to be such a big deal, Len Wein would never have written. In Central Park <laughs> number 181. I said, Len, take a vacation, you know, go to, go to Central Park, walk around, talk to the lions for, for a week, I, I, a month. I'm going to write uh, this issue with Wolverine. He wouldn't have been the same character, Exactly. He would have had the, some of the same, but I don't know, you know, what I've had given him adamantium claws. Well, John Musima, John Ramita drew them. So I, he, they had to be something, but he wouldn't have had, you know, exactly the same character, but he'd have been similar, but not identical. But, uh, I'm, you know, so I'm, 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 I'm happy to, to, to share that with Len and uh, who's such a talented guy. And uh, one of the only thing I mentioned, I won't go into detail about this because they're not going to reveal it Wednesday or any other time in advance is that it does it's a little tiny mystery that's been around for about 47 years. And, and I decided to 
kind of clear it up. And Marvel was happy to have me do it, figuring that, you know, having been around 47 years ago uh, in 1974. So you're going to see a little stamp. But when you see it, it's a little thing. But when yeah. you see it, you're going to be like, oh, my God, that's yeah. right. But it was, it was kind of it was a fun thing to do. And yeah, it, so you'll figure it out. But it's only one little detail in a, a fairly nice story with the X-Men. Who's your so artist? So, um, oh, God. I don't know. They'll tell you on Wednesday. I, I, he's, a, he's very good. Yeah. I just forget his name because I haven't worked with him before and I haven't said his name. I haven't talked to him personally, but he's he, I've seen the layouts for the book. He's reworking a couple of things. The editor wanted to change and I have to plot the next uh, the second part in the next week or two uh, and everything. He wanted me to hold off until the, the first one was coming in. So I, but it, but it's really nice looking stuff. It's it's not it's just that I'm you know, I've just forgotten the name because yeah, yeah, I know it's OK. It but well. just so you know, but he's very good. Like what I was saying about this little mystery, even Marvel said it was so cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were like, oh, yeah. my God. When I, when I did this little thing, I wasn't sure they you know, so like it. They might so take it out. But they tie something it. up yeah. with Wolverine. So, to get so it ties a little something up there. So anyway, you'll see. Yeah, I think I think that's so exciting. We get to I'm see a Roy Thomas that, Wolverine I'm story. I'm glad you told me that it wouldn't be, you know, this wouldn't be out till Wednesday because otherwise I couldn't have said that. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll put this out. Uh, okay. We'll put this episode out next week. Okay. Uh, we have an interview with June Brigman uh, from the Power Pack series coming out uh -huh. just four years, and then yours will be. You'll, yours will come Good. out next. Good. Good. Uh, I'm so excited. We we're loving the X Men Legends series. It's fun to put that into is, the old time. Is it already coming out? I didn't even know. So yeah, they, they've, they've done a number of, of things with, uh, with Louise Simonson mm -hmm. and Fabian Nicieza and, and other things like that. So yeah, you're, yeah, there, there's uh there's 10 or 12 issues out, but it sounds like yours will be coming out next, which is really exciting. Is it okay? They don't come out every month, right? There are sometimes periods between or is it, it, it is a monthly book, but they're only doing oh. one or one or two issue runs. So a creator yeah, right. will do Mine's a couple two, issues yeah, yeah. and I then see. there'll be another and then another. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, going back into X factor yeah. and X Men. Well, and I'm, I'm very happy that they, you know, invited me to do it and let me and, and encouraged me to do it set during more or less that period when I was writing the book. And even though it's just a little later, it's during the period when I was the editor, because, you know, it was, it was a while uh, the idea of an international group of heroes uh, was somebody else's idea. The idea that the X-Men would come back as that was my idea. So I, you know, so I felt like it, it made a lot of sense for me to finally do a story set in that period, which I never had done before. Uh, what an absolute honor to spend this time with you. Uh, Roy, thank you. Thank you so much for answering my many, many questions and for sharing your memories. Uh, this is, this is wonderful. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, so you guys know how to reach me anytime. We are uh, we are super excited to announce uh, this is a, such a stunning interview. But uh, the the next interview we're going to be doing on Gray Malkin Lane will be with uh, with Mr. Steve Engelhart, who is a friend of yours, I presume, right? Yeah, Steve Engelhart. He's our boys. He's part of the Roy Thomas boys. It, it rings a bell. Rings yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. love yeah. him. Well, hey, you guys, thank you so much. Have a have a wonderful evening. Uh, we will see you back here uh, next time on uh, Gray Malkin Lane.